Welcome back to All Things Explained. And the topic for today is... The Allure of Pleasure. The Allure of Pleasure. Yes, and I, I brought the wrong draft with me, so uh, we'll just wing it this time. In Xanadu did Kublai Khan a stately pleasure dome decree. People have always felt the allure of pleasure. It's not just something for modern times. Uh, sure, that's one of those consistent aspects of human nature. Sure, and, and the quote that uh, I came in with was written by Samuel Taylor Coleridge in 1797 when he was high on opium. Seeking so, pleasure. Yeah, so a very modern take on, okay. on uh, or at least sounds like a modern take on pleasure. Um, in the last episode, I talked about the meaning of love being grounded in meaningful relationships, most deeply in loving relationships that involved shared communication about our inner selves, and involving stated commitments that create the trust that makes meaningful bonding possible. Uh, can I cut in real quick? Sure. That's another one of those things that is an enduring aspect of humanity. Now it goes uh, back to uh, as far as we know people in recorded history. Across all of time and across the globe have found meaning in their life there, among mm -hmm. other places, but that, that is an important aspect of human existence universally. Yeah, we focus now on the fact that they were arranged marriages or some other aspect of it as an economic relationship with the, uh, I guess, the undertone that it wasn't about romantic love that we began to idealize uh, in the age of chivalry. Mm -hmm. But if you read the actual writings, these people loved each other, they supported each other emotionally, uh, you know, they were very deeply intertwined. And, you know, the Romeo and, Romeo and Juliet kind of love relationship just goes back through the centuries. It didn't start with the Elizabethan period. Okay. So um, we have this as... Um, not just as an ideal, but as a working reality throughout most of recorded history. But we are also creatures of passion. Um, hunger keeps us alive by prompting us to eat. So passion, I'm not saying it's a bad thing, right. but we are passionate creatures. Fear prompts us to avoid things that could harm us. And sexual passion prompts us to bond with a member of the opposite sex and make a family. Mm -hmm. But, um, I mean, uh, let's talk about sex for a moment because it runs close to the core of who we are. When a husband and wife commit to each other, love each other deeply, effectively sharing their souls with each other, then in that context, uh, sharing the extreme emotional and physical vulnerability of sexual passion provides a physical affirmation of their unguarded trust and commitment to each other. Um, even with couples who have no commitment to each other, the act of sex creates an emotional bond that wasn't there before. Certainly. Now, they're, they're likely both planning to break that bond, but mm. they really can't escape the experience of mm. it. So, pleasure can draw us off course. Uh, it, the problem with pleasure as opposed to meaningful relationships is just that pleasure in and of itself has no meaning. It's meaningless. By itself. Yeah. Right. So um, a libertine can um, devote himself to pleasure, but then he ends up wondering what's the point of his existence, mm -hmm. even while he's experiencing more pleasure. And, well, there is no point to that existence. That's... That's why, even though you know there's an obvious attraction to it, because we like experiencing pleasure, sure. we're also intuitively suspicious of a life devoted to pleasure. That if you could hold some device in your hand that would give you unending pleasure, would you keep holding it until you died? Because nothing, even eating food, would be more pleasurable than holding on to that contraption. 
I've heard that that has actually been done in rats. Oh yeah. And um, yeah, where the rats would press a little press a little lever, mm-hmm. and it would send an electrical stimulus into their brain. They had little wires plugged in, and it would stimulate the pleasure center in the brain. Oh, okay. And the rats would literally press that bar repeatedly until they starved to death. But the rats are not human. They're not human, but you see, on that level, we're not much different from rats. People can live for the pursuit of pleasure. Yeah, Yeah. humans and animals both share pleasure. And they can both experience it. And, you know, I don't know if we feel sorry for the rat that died that way, but for a human, I think there would have to be a certain sense of Unease or, or horror. Yeah, yeah. We, we at, at someone who died that way. The person is. We know that they they're missing out on something deeper. Yeah, yeah. Kind of like the uh, the drug addict who loses his family for the sake of his drug, and he's totally convinced he's in control and doing what he wants to do, and he's enjoying it, and it's very pleasurable for him. Yeah. Um, but we feel sorry for that person because he's missing out he's on all the great things in life on stuff he, he seems to have lost any awareness of yeah so pleasure can draw us off course into a meaningless life <clears throat> now what um, is disturbing about modern culture is that our elites don't seem to understand that lesson our elites don't understand that is our culture, and you know, I'm using the term elite very loosely. I don't okay. have any particular people in okay. mind. Oh, okay. The, the disseminators of culture. The disseminators, the the people who decide, you know, what's good and what's bad as far as art. Who who decide what shows up on our channels that we get to choose from. The people who make judgments uh, and policymakers. The, the the people at the levers of power who are deciding to a certain extent what kind of culture, what kind of civilization we have. And, and you're saying they don't understand this lesson. Just to make sure I'm not missing it, the lesson is... I'm, I'm saying, yes, that they have really given over themselves and our culture to uh, a hedonistic okay. perspective. So the lesson that pleasure isn't worthy as a final goal or a organizing principle for one's life. Yeah, I mean, the um, I take the institution of marriage. So um, it's, um, it's dedicated to keeping people together. That is, you don't enter into it unless you make a complete commitment to stay with this person forever. Historically, that's been yeah, the yeah. deal. Now, you know, you go into older cultures, the upper classes, they had a divorce clause, and it wasn't always that stable. But generally speaking, uh, when you marry, you marry for life. And the reason for that is that you know you're stuck with each other and you have to make it work. And this is the person you're going to be intimate with as long as both of you live. And that means... You can trust them. Yeah, yeah. They're not going anywhere. Yeah, yeah. I mean, unless they're, you know, some bad person who actively sabotages their own marriage, you're you're in it together, Mm -hmm. and you share your secrets, and you become emotionally intimate, and that's great because now you have somebody with whom you can be yourself, Mm. and trust them, and share life together. And that's wonderful. But um, in a culture devoted to pleasure, there ceases to be cultural support for meaningful activities. So um, taking uh, marriage, what happens is um, they transform marriage from this permanent institution into serial monogamy. Just one after the other, you mean? Just one after the other. So you know there's a good chance you're going to be with this person only a certain number of years and then break it off. How painful is that going to be? Well, it'll be as painful as your commitment to that person. 
If you never make a total commitment, then you can survive the divorce. Which is more likely to come if you haven't made Well, exactly, exactly. So um, what happens is since our betters were were working with a hedonistic calculus and doing cost-benefits analysis of social policy, they thought, well, um, all that gets mentioned here under, never mind what they think, all that gets mentioned under the benefit column is pleasure. That is... um, Meaning-giving activity doesn't show up except on the cost side because it requires a sacrifice, a oh, commitment. Well, the the perfect example of that is raising children. Mm-hmm. There's, there's hardly anything more meaningful in one's life than that. But it is presented in you know on the internet and in the shows as just such a cost, as such a burden. Yeah, it's not seen as a joy or a goal or a path. Right, an expected path through a meaningful life, like it used to be presented. I remember the shows when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. It was just much more common to see uh, parenting as a respected role rather mm-hmm. than as a scorned role. Like well, because it limits day. your freedom. You're you're chained to these kids. Yeah, and if you get married, it's like okay, well, now the guy has made a commitment that he has to give up having a tryst with some pretty woman because he's committed to his wife. And that's a cost in pleasure. And uh, ever they're both bound to the kids, and uh, they should feel guilty if they send them to boarding school so they can spend more time playing bunko with their friends. Mm. They, um, th- this cost doesn't consider at any point what counts as a meaningful life or what contributes to living a meaningful life. It's not on their radar. And so I want to understand how it got that way. Instead of complaining about how it is, let's understand how we got into this fix. How our culture got to where it is not focusing properly on the most meaningful things. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, on what's important. Oh, yeah. Um, Understanding how we got here. mm Mm-hmm. So what I'm looking at is, um, is that this really started in the 1700s in England. Um, Jeremy Bentham yeah. wrote, quote, Nature has placed mankind under the governance of two sovereign masters, pain and pleasure. It is for them alone to point out what we ought to do, as well as to determine what we shall do. Now, Bentham here specified nature has placed mankind under the governance, but he makes it clear elsewhere in his theory that uh, there's a moral equivalence for him of all creatures who can feel pleasure. That what matters is how much pleasure is experienced, and it doesn't matter whether it's a dog or a human experiencing the pleasure. Right, right. It doesn't matter which human is experiencing the pleasure. He's making, a, you said, a moral equivalence amongst all of these creatures. Right, but he grounds it in what he thinks is a fact of nature. He states that we are determined by nature to do what is most pleasurable. And to avoid what is painful. Yes. Well, okay, so here's... Can I give my immediate response on that? Sure. I see him making an error that I I think I often see intellectuals make. And that is that they come up with what is actually a good and reasonable idea. Like Certainly people do seek pleasure and do seek to avoid pain. Mm-hmm. But then they make just a flat out error of reductionism. They take this idea and then they... They, for some reason, they think that, you know, perhaps because I thought this idea up, they mm-hmm. think that my idea explains everything you know, mm-hmm. all of human existence human history all of our dilemmas it's all now explained by this one idea and mm-hmm. that would be the error yeah and um or the error bentham's making right yeah now. isaac newton um looms large on that not by any choice of his own um Isaac Newton was a theist who accepted supernatural activity in the modern world but his theory of planetary motion and he unified astrophysics with terrestrial physics right. they had been separate up to that yeah, point yeah 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 um, 
No, so I see what you're getting at. So before before Newton, <clears throat> mm-hmm. people thought the things on this earth were subject to one set of physical laws, and the mm-hmm. things in the heavens were explained by another. And he uh, reduced not, it. Yeah, not everybody. Right, right, but, but that was the prevailing. Prevailing. It, it's it's it was still around. Yeah, but the point is, he reduced it to one explanation that explained it all. Yeah, and so you're saying that that perhaps started a trend of trying to reduce the explanation to the simplest number of causes. It became the ideal. Yeah. Certainly uh, in physics, it remains mm-hmm. the ideal. Mm-hmm. But, but this error of reductionism does seem to be a result of that, that type of thinking. Yeah, and it's um, a couple of things that, that are interesting about this. Um, uh, one, I want to place it in time. He's, he bent them states this in 1780 it's when his his book on uh, that includes his utilitarian theory comes out okay that's the middle year of the american revolution mm. and it you know perhaps we could call the american revolution the pinnacle event of western civilization certainly yeah. one of them yeah yeah i enough. mean it, it is the first time that we see established a working democracy with no monarchy Mm-hmm. The idea that people have to be, you know, hit with a stick to behave themselves well enough to live together in a stable society uh, is being pushed aside with the idea that people can, through the, you know, formal structure of a democratic government, effectively govern themselves. Now, the, the American revolutionaries were quite keen on the idea that people were not perfect and they needed government and that the people in the government were no more perfect than the people being right. governed. That is fundamental. And so there had to be checks and balances all the way around. But there was a confidence that people were good enough that they could govern themselves without falling into chaos, which was the ancient view that democracy is the final stage of corruption in the decline of civilization before it falls into abject chaos, mm. which, then, which then gives rise to a strong man to bring order out of that chaos because everyone's desperate for something that's better than chaos, and that completes the cycle. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, yeah, this was... Um, now, Bentham, was he from England? He's England. He, okay. He's British. But they I mean, were aware of what was going on. Well, sure. I mean, America. it was a big deal. But yeah. still, I don't think there's any connection between the American Revolution and Bentham's thoughts. I think um, uh, it's just a coincidence. Okay. But it's a, it's a striking coincidence that we hit this high point, um, this new development that startles the world. And and Bentham is basically like uh, I try not to be negative when I'm considering people's ways of thinking, but okay. it strikes me that he was kind of like a cutworm at the base of it all, because hmm. he's going to he's going to replace the foundation of Western Civ hmm. uh, with something radically different that really would work to completely transform it. So I guess you still have civilization in the West, so it's Western civilization, but it's not going to be anything recognizable uh, to people Mm. living before Bentham's time and before his hedonistic theory takes over. So, So to put this in perspective, you're talking about how we got here Mm -hmm. with with people, the explanation being people seeking pleasure and uh, rather than what is meaningful. And so you're Mm -hmm. starting this with Bentham in 1780. Yeah. uh, I mean, Bentham's theory basically um, drives from ethics all talk of meaning. I mean, he he leaves pleasure as the only good. That's that's the heart of his theory. And would you say, I mean, it seems to me, correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems, and I've not studied Bentham, but it seems obvious that this is the sort of thing that follows naturally from the secularized Enlightenment thinking. Yeah, I mean, and <clears throat> it's true that um, 
and, and very important, that by 1780, people were actively looking for naturalistic explanations for everything. Yeah, we're into um, 100 years after Newton's yeah. writings. Yeah. yeah, and Newton gave us the idea that, well, maybe everything is determined by natural laws. There isn't even any free will. We're all just physical beings in a physical world determined by the laws of physics. And, right. and Newton wasn't preaching that, but no. his ideas set the path uh, for a, made a, it, a mechanical yeah, universe. They were, they were friendly to that kind yeah. of um, thinking. And here you have Bentham, and he's going to point to what he asserts as a fact, that people and animals pursue pleasure and avoid pain. That's a fact. And, you know, going back to some earlier patterns of thought that we haven't really gotten into yet, the idea is, okay, if that's the, in fact, the ultimate goal, we, there is no higher transcendent notion of the good. What is good is what is best for human nature. Then pleasure is the good. Mm -hmm. uh, there's nothing else to be found. And so if pleasure is the good, then we not only are determined by our nature to pursue pleasure, we ought to pursue pleasure. So morality is redefined along these redefined. lines. Now, it's not totally upended. There is a sort of Christianizing element to it. Otherwise, it wouldn't have been palatable uh, to people of that time. Uh, Bentham doesn't state it as egoistic where you must pursue your own pleasure. He says pleasure is the good, right? Not just your pleasure is good for oh, you. Okay. It's more abstract. Pleasure is the good and therefore a moral obligation is not to seek uh, to maximize our own pleasure, but to seek to maximize pleasure, total pleasure. Across society. Acro society, human society, and the animal world. And the animal world. Hmm. Okay, so pleasure is like this impersonal stuff like cheese and our moral obligation is to maximize the amount of cheese in the world. Well, no, <laughs> to maximize the amount of pleasure in the world. Yeah, yeah. It, but that's but but in doing so, <clears throat> he launched an entirely secular ethical right system. Right. And the elites of Bentham's day went wild for it. Hmm. I mean, not everybody totally all at once. But this was hot stuff from the beginning, especially the younger generation of intellectuals. Uh, they really rallied around Bentham, and they were advancing his theories, and, and they caught on. Uh, G.K. Chesterton, who's a, a Victorian writer, commenter, yeah. um, tells us the upper classes of his time were utterly, in his words, utterly pagan. Okay. All right? And uh, he, he points out that uh, in his time, common sense meant being an atheist. Hmm. So, yeah, this, this is Enlightenment thinking. Yeah, too, right? well, it's, it's after the Enlightenment, technically, but the thing is the Enlightenment won. Right. So the Enlightenment thinking didn't go away. It just got modified and added to. But th this is Victorian England. Chesterton was approximately when... Uh, late 1800s, very early 1900s. Okay. So he's kind of summing up the Victorian age, but I mean, he lived through enough of it himself to um, to know what was going on. Mm -hmm. And it might be startling to us since Victoria was outwardly living the trappings of English monarchy and, you know, accepting the blessings of the church and... Um, as Kierkegaard would say, uh, everything was going on as before the problem was no one believed in any of it. And so this is fertile ground for a new hedonistic theory of ethics. And uh, Chesterton writes, uh, quote, The utilitarian tradition held the center of the field. It was the philosophy and office, so to speak. The utilitarian. The utilitarianism by by 
Yeah, by the late 1800s, it had become the default view. That is, if you were a till utilitarian, you had common sense, you were advanced in your thinking, you didn't have to defend what you mm. thought. If you weren't a utilitarian, it didn't mean automatically you didn't know what you were doing, but you needed to be ready to defend mm -hmm. it. Um, Utilitarianism was kind of the default setting. Yes. Um, and it, that goes back to Bentham, at least mm -hmm. in part. Yeah. Yeah, to Bentham. And uh, Mill helped it along right. a lot by camouflaging it. Mm. But that's, um, I think that's probably another story. Okay. Yeah, yeah. How, how Bentham uh, <clears throat> kind of made utilitarianism palatable to people who weren't ready to jump on the bandwagon for hedonism. I mean, he oh, yeah, of course, because the hedon it's obvious the people who want to pursue a hedonistic lifestyle, they find. Um, some support for that in a utilitarian view mm -hmm. of the world, yeah. Yeah, and Bentham, I mean, Mill, John Stuart Mill, stops using the word pleasure. Now, it's not a trick. He tells you explicitly early in his book, Utilitarianism, that it's a hedonistic theory. It's about maximizing pleasure, but he thinks happiness is a more friendly word but by happiness in the book, he doesn't mean something different. He means pleasure. It's okay. just a stand-in. And he tells you that. Yeah, okay. And yeah, I, I would enjoy a lesson on Mill at some point down the road. Yeah, yeah. And, and it, but it, it's interesting because um, what Mill does is provide uh, more consonants between utilitarian and Christianity. In fact, at one point he claims that someone who follows utilitarian theory consistently will behave in a more Christian-like manner than most Christians behave. Hmm. So it's a totally different foundation, but it's quite friendly to the uh, making it to the Christian social mores to which we're all accustomed. Yeah. Right? So you can keep living like you were living. What you thought was right and wrong is still what's right and wrong. But now we have a rational, naturalistic explanation yeah. for ethics. Okay. Okay. You can get rid of the God stuff. Right. Well, um, that's, that's the utilitarian influence, and it's, it's the central influence. Uh, but it's not the only one. So having talked about Mentham, now I would like to mention uh, someone that may be less familiar, and that would be, um, <clears throat> let's see, Reich. And there's also Nietzsche. Let's do Reich first. Reich. Wilhelm Reich. Okay. Um, and he, he's less known, but um, he wasn't really a utilitarian so much. He was um, originally a disciple of Sigmund Freud. Okay. And Reich uh, broke with Freud and went in uh, a diametrically opposed direction from Freud. Um, so first, we should say a little paragraph, a sentence or two on, on Freud. Yeah, yeah. Now, Freud is supposed to be this <clears throat> deeply radical guy who overturned an aspect of Western culture with his new insights in psychology, but Freud remained heavily influenced by traditional thinking. Uh, and, and in the big picture of his theory... Um, think of the Garden of Eden, which is fair because I think Freud was still shaped by his Jewish heritage, right? So okay. we're going to um, Genesis, the Garden of Eden. God gives Adam a rule. Adam understands the rule. When offered a piece of fruit, Adam breaks the rule. All right. Mm -hmm. Now, this is the, uh, the usual Judeo-Christian way what we think of God. He's the rule maker. We humans understand the rules God gives us. But 
because of our inner urges getting the better of us, we keep breaking the rules. Because mm-hmm. the rules conflict yeah. with these inner urges that sometimes seems to come outside of ourselves. I mean, they're from outside. They're, we're, we, we don't like them. We want to do what's good, but we end up doing what's bad anyway. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, Freud was an atheist, so he, he has to replace God, but he keeps the basic framework. God is replaced with society. It is society that makes the rules. Okay. All right. So basically cultural relativism. Mm-hmm. Now that, that's another issue. So you've got society making the rules and the person... Um, let's focus on Freud's conscious person, he calls it the ego, knows what society's rules are. But the person has these urges coming from who knows where that lead him to keep breaking society's rules. And Freud said, well, the, the, this, it's the label he puts on whatever it is in the unconscious where these urges come from, that's the id. Okay. Okay. So instead of God, human, human urges, it's society, ego, the subconscious, the id. Okay. All right. But it's the same basic idea. And Freud uh, was actually friendly to that. Uh, just as in the Judeo-Christian model, God's rules are good because God is good. We ought to try and follow them. Um, Freud thought society's rules were good because they were necessary to keep humans from destroying each other. Okay. That Freud saw the it as dangerous. These urges had to be, these passions had to be controlled by an outside structure uh, with, you know, a reward-punishment system so that we could all live together in relative peace. Okay, I think I'm following you. That's the, that's basic Freud in a nutshell. That's basic Freud in a nutshell, okay. and very old school. I mean, he's writing in the very late 1800s into the 20th century. Uh, so, so some of his major works came out in the 1910s and 1920s. Right? So, even though he had basically replaced God with society, he's saying there is a set of rules that we need to follow in order mm-hmm. to organize society and relate to each other, and that's a yeah. good thing. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, the, 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 uh, I mean, you know, a, a Christian would call these urges uh, sin nature. Perhaps, yeah. Yeah, and it could. So there's that negative side conflicting with our knowledge of the good, God's rules, the positive side. Freud, the id is... Negative in this, it's natural, but it's dangerous. Okay, there it's irrational, and irrational means bad. So okay. it, it kind of parallels the traditional <clears throat> sure. view of things. Oh, yes, okay. And, um, but that's not what's going on in, in the general culture with you know Benthamite hedonism and the sat and, and maximizing pleasure because. Under that view, there is no judgment as to good pleasure and bad pleasure. Right. Anything that is pleasurable is good because pleasure is the good. Yeah, it doesn't, by definition, yeah, it doesn't matter good. what causes it. Yeah. Now it matters in the sense that okay, you're doing something that causes pleasure here, but more pain over there. Well, that's a some negative, hmm. so that's not good. So if you get pleasure from causing somebody else pain that's probably a bad thing. But you could look at it as the reason it's a bad thing is you didn't get enough pleasure out of it. If your pleasure greatly outweighed the amount of pain you cause, you could do that just like uh, causing yourself pain in exercise, but in the long run it brings about a more pleasurable life because you're in good physical condition. Yeah, yeah, but you're saying in the Benthamite view of things that that's the highest... Arbiter of what's good and bad. Yeah, we're, yeah. Pleasure but see, we're okay about exercise because we're causing a little pain to ourselves and getting benefit. Well, utilitarianism is general. It doesn't matter who feels the pain. Mm-hmm. If you can cause some other person a little bit of pain, but some third person great pleasure or yourself great pleasure, that's a net benefit. If that yeah, really yeah. works in the long term, then it's okay to cause that little bit of pain over here. Strikes me as a pretty dangerous idea. It's a very impersonal. Well, that too. Well, by design, an impersonal 
ethic, okay? So, <clears throat> but the idea here is that um, if pleasure is good, you run with pleasure, unless there's some overriding reason, some, some reason to think that it's going to cause a lot of pain in the long term. If it's pleasure, you run with it. And Reich took Freud's ideas, his view of psychology, but Reich didn't retain Freud's judgment that society's rules were good and the id was dangerous. Reich thought that society's rules were arbitrary, repressive, and caused neuroses. And Reich taught that mental and emotional health required the release and free expression of our most basic urges. Huh. Reich is for unbridling the passions as the key to happiness. Okay. Now that'll preach. Oh, gosh, yeah. Uh, so he... Yeah, a, lot, a lot of people would be eager to receive that message. And, and they were. He had yeah. uh, disciples, minions... Uh, uh, some of the things he said were were rather, uh, well, just crazy. I mean, he made some thing, judgments about physics that seemed very mystical and, and false. But it, the basic idea that he, he advanced, you know, really caught on and couldn't be stopped. The idea that, okay, pleasure is the good then satisfying our basic urges is good. So this is where you're saying he went opposite Freud, where Freud had this set of restraint built into his system that at to least... To control the dangerous end. Yeah, that at least paralleled traditional morality. Reich is, Reich, is it Reich or Reich? Reich, Reich? Well, I think it's Reich. He's German. Okay. R-E-I-C-H. Yeah, he's, so... he's going the opposite way. Is it throw off the restraints. Yeah, yeah. He's saying, no, society's rules are bad because they cause neuroses. They repress people. They're, they're, okay. they're, they're yeah, painful yeah. and damaging. And freedom to follow our urges and express yeah, yeah. ourselves and enjoy sensations is the way to go. So th this, I, I was trying to recall this because I've read his name mentioned. And, um, and I think it was along the lines of I can't remember what I was reading but I've heard him before but I think it was along the lines of what's modern and today known as queer theory mm -hmm. which is to throw off all all norms because any kind of norm is a constraint and therefore something that is repressing people yeah you can think of that as like third or fourth generation uh, derivative uh, of um, of Reich of Reich yeah and I mean, Reich wasn't the only, you know, freewheeling hedonist uh, out right, there. Right. But he's he wrote these things down. He marketed them well. He was influential. Uh, one of the people he influenced was Fritz Perls. Fritz Perls. Fritz Perls, who was uh, a founder of the um, Salem Society in California, and Perls and others became leaders of. Um, uh, what's called the human potential movement. Oh, okay. Right. So they trained people to live only in the moment and to focus on realizing their personal potential. Now, why do you have to focus on the moment? Well, well think about it. If you, if you take in the large view, then you're cognizant of the fact that at some point you're going to die. And then you start asking yourself what the, uh, what the sum of your life means or will mean when you get to the end of it. And you start thinking biblically where the Proverbs tells us um, to number our days that we might have wisdom. In mm -hmm. other words, realize your life is finite. Live it so that your life is going to be something important you know, understand and accept you're going to die at some point, And that should be part of the calculus of how to live your life. Well, that's not very happy. Mm -hmm. And it's also, it's talking about meaning. 
and meaning these people have already lived that far in far mm-hmm. in the past it's uh it's all about pleasure now well to have pleasure and happiness you have to keep all that out of mind so just block out that one day you're going to die focus mm-hmm. on the here and now go take that yeah and and uh, maximize your human potential so there's a mix here it's it's hedonistic and that you know satisfying your urges is pleasurable but when you talk about potential maximizing skill, you're talking really about maximizing your personal power. Hmm. So there's a Nietzschean element. The, with the emphasis on power. Yeah, so we got to go back and, and, and mention Nietzsche now, because yeah, yeah. he's also writing, he's writing in the 1880s. That's when he was most prolific, prolific and, um, well, after 18... By 1890, he was incapacitated. He lived out the rest of his life uh, in a mental hospital, really unable to communicate. Um, he suffered uh, evidently some kind of breakdown. No one really understands what it was okay. about. But he's writing at a time when utilitarianism is in full swing, and he's reacting against that. And in particular, he's being very clear and rational about it that the utilitarians have gotten rid of the Christian foundation of ethics. Mm-hmm. And therefore, their adherence to Christian moral practices is without any foundation. It's kind of coasting on the societal inertia yeah. of earlier ages. Sure, everybody's comfortable with it. It's like, well, yeah, of course we must do unto others as we would have them do unto us. And you don't steal your neighbor's mail. Yeah, of course, yeah. yeah. And is um, and saying, no, you got rid of the reason for believing that stuff. Right. Yeah, You're, he saw that as a real crisis. As a real crisis. And when it came to utilitarianism and this idea of experiencing pleasure, he, he got it totally that that puts us on the level of animals, which doesn't bother a utilitarian, but it bothered Nietzsche. He said, look, you're, you're reducing humankind to herd animals. They're without will. They just move toward what is most pleasurable and they move away from pain. And it's very easy for the, you know, the elite of society to treat them as cattle and use pleasure and pain to shape them according it. And these cattle are just reacting according to pleasure and pain. And it's not a real life for Nietzsche. Now, Nietzsche is okay with the utilitarians jettisoning jettisoning the Christian foundation of ethics because Nietzsche had also rejected it himself. But he didn't believe that you could, you know, magically keep acting according to Christian ethics when there was no foundation for it. I, I kind of sum it up as like this, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but just kind of the simple layman's understanding, because we need a heuristic mm-hmm. shortcut to make sense of things. So the utilitarians are saying, hey, no more ethical restraint on us from God above. Mm-hmm. It's not going to be fun. And Nietzsche's saying, hey, no more restraints on us from God above. Oh, no. Um, oh, no, in the sense that we're now alone in a meaningless universe. Exactly. Um, but he's repulsed by a hedonistic philosophy that really makes one uh, how do I put this passive? I mean, you can actively pursue pleasure, but it, it kind of makes one a slave to one's passions. Mm-hmm. Okay, right. And therefore easily manipulated. Mm. And just thoughtlessly moving from pleasure to pleasure, Nietzsche looks down on that and says, no, that's no life for a man. And so what is a man to do now? And Nietzsche says, well, look, you say that we pursue pleasure and avoid pain, uh, but really what humans seek is power. Mm. So for Nietzsche, the utilitarians are really looking at cattle as their model of humanity. They live together peacefully 
they graze because it's uh, pleasurable, they sleep in the sun because it's pleasurable, they flee from a fire because it's painful. And that's good enough because there isn't anything to life beyond pleasure and pain. And Nietzsche says, no, really the model for human beings should be the tiger. Because the tiger enjoys the hunt. The tiger's doing something. Hmm. The tiger's thinking. The tiger's sizing up how to catch his prey. The tiger's having a good time. And the tiger is willing to endure pain to achieve his objective. Hmm. It's not all about pleasure. Uh, and, and that's... That's still talking about an animal. What really Nietzsche has in mind is that a human has the intellect and the will and the desire to control his environment. He's going to shape his life into what he wants it to be, and he's willing to endure a great hardship to do that. He sneers at the creature who isn't going to do something because it might be painful. Mm -hmm. Nietzsche thinks in terms of becoming master of his environment, his realm. Yeah, yeah. So, and he's a thinking thing, not an animal. And so he understands laws. But the goal is to be the guy who makes the laws. Yeah, in, and this, this isn't pursuit of pleasure, but I can certainly see how this would have an appeal to people. Yes. The idea that you are free because there is no God. You can act. You can do things. And you should act according to your will to maximize your power. And in your domain, in your space, you are the highest moral authority. You set the moral code. Good is what you say is good. Bad is what you say is bad. There is no evil. There's just your own personal taste. And this was, you know, this is a standard criticism of, of nihilism and, and naturalistic ideas that, that it reduces morality to taste. Well, Nietzsche was quite fine with that. Right. But you should I mean, if, make if, your environment suit your taste. And is your taste the good taste or a bad taste or the right well, taste? No, there is, there is no higher standard. Right, right. If it, God or some kind of transcendent morality is removed from the picture, mm -hmm. it seems to me that that does in fact follow. Right. And so there's that influence, seems to be, to me, on the human potential movement. This idea, not only of you're going to maximize your pleasure, more than that, you're going to realize your human potential to do things. Okay. You know, your skill set, and you're really increasing your power by understanding of, oh, I don't have to hold back on this. I can do that. Your ability to act in the world and your, your ability through your own competence at things to change the world. Getting rid of the internal resistance to that. Getting rid of society's uh, lies, they would say, that no, you shouldn't think that way. No, you shouldn't grow up to be that. No, you shouldn't do this. So, uh, and by this, you're essentially referring to the traditional set of norms and morals that people were living by, even if they had that would be a big part of it. Trying to foundation. get rid of that nagging voice. Uh, one yeah. one author said, uh, "There's a we all have a policeman inside our head, and he needs to be killed. The conscience, yeah, needs to be killed. Yes. Who, who said that?" Oh, I'm trying to remember. Oh, I can dig okay. it up. The name isn't isn't critical. The idea is what matters. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and Nietzsche was speaking from that point of view. Well, um, yeah, is, yeah. Nietzsche was saying, look, if, be, if you can look at reality straight on, there is no lifeguard. That conscience <laughs> needs to be killed and mm -hmm. replaced with something? Replaced with your own will. Your own will. And that's the hard part. That's why you need someone who's strong and capable to do that. Yeah, and Nietzsche thought that in his time, practically no one had that. When he had his character Zarathustra talk about the the overman. I was going to say, is this Ubermensch, Nietzsche? we call it Superman, or really you could call it the above man. The overman. This was Nietzsche's he's, idea that the overman... He's higher than the guys you see today. 
he's above this, you know, angst about what we should do. He's over this inner conflict. He's cool with himself, and he does as he pleases, and, and he, he doesn't have any second thoughts about it. He's, he, in other words, he's strong enough to replace this previously dominant moral code with his own. Yes. Okay. And be happy with that. Mm-hmm. And understand that um, no. that when he dies, it will have meant nothing. And Nietzsche was saying that this Uberman, this is the type of person we now need. He's saying it not so much we need that person as that's the kind of person that must come into existence to survive the realization that God is dead. Right. Nietzsche said we killed God. Right. And by that he meant through the scientific revolution and our turn toward naturalism, we basically jettisoned this idea of God from our thinking. Right. And um, just for the listener, and let me state my understanding here. You correct me if I'm wrong because you're the expert here. But people are making a mistake if they see Nietzsche as proselytizing this idea of the death of God or atheism. That He saw it as that had been done. Yeah. The death of God had been established and he yeah. was trying to deal with the ramifications of that. Mm-hmm. And now we need the overman now because God has died. Yes, his, his frustration was that he couldn't get people to realize that they had killed God. Yeah. You I, had this civilization that's still rolling on the track of Judeo-Christianity. And I think, um, yeah, I think there's actually quite a bit of difference in the elite academics and the common people in this in this regard. That the elite academics are the first to throw off the traditional theories and adopt the latest, whatever's being taught, you know, mm-hmm. Bentham or whatever, where the, the people out in the village are actually you know, still celebrating Christmas and teaching their children that this is the day Jesus was born. Mm-hmm. And the, the broader... Or, and and throwing salt over their shoulder to guard against bad luck. Okay, yeah. Yeah, but the, there's traditions and customs and ideas that are passed on from parent to child, generation mm-hmm. after generation, that across the population might actually persist for a long time mm-hmm. being very different from what the the academics are publishing in their papers. Right. Yes. And but the academics teach the governing elites. It filters out into the what? world eventually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it starts at the top. Yeah. Right. Yeah, that's uh, folk thinking that's the, exactly the kind of provincial thinking that um, John Dewey was intent on crushing through the public education yeah, system. Yeah, okay. Oh, that would be a, great to do uh, some talks on that. Yeah, but, you know, this idea of hedonism, Dewey didn't get rid of that. I mean, he has, okay. he has you know, his social theory, but the core values... Uh, utilitarianism is still king and it's a hedonistic philosophy even though it's not egoistic hedonism of you maximize your own pleasure and I'll maximize mine it's a socially responsible hedonism we must do that which maximizes the greatest amount of pleasure for the greatest number Mm -hmm. it's still it's still geared toward everyone living a meaningless life. You know, not that they're trying to crush meaning and force people to live without meaning when they should be living with meaning. Their their point of view is it's a fact, life is meaningless. So right. it's a waste of time to try and pretend that there's this higher meaning that we we should aspire to. There's only what we get in this life. And what we get in this life needs to be uh, creating the maximum amount of pleasure. Meaning isn't really an option. So yeah. Pleasure becomes a fallback guiding principle. Right. I mean, the, the Nietzsche, uh, he's, he's a precursor in some ways to the um, existentialists right. who also got on this idea that, well, 
you can have a meaningful life, but it's only the meaning that you create for yourself. Um, They weren't so much about will to power. They were more open about what a meaningful life could be, more flexible. But still, it was a, a pessimistic philosophy in that, you know, they had to agree with Nietzsche that, you know, if that's all there is, then at the end of your life, when you die, it all meant nothing. Right. We die and rot and that's it. Yeah. Uh, yeah, okay. Which Nietzsche, again, said that that's a hard pill to swallow. But the strong man is capable of facing that head that, on. That truth, yeah. yes. The the Ubermensch. All right. Are we at the end there? Uh, I guess we've covered um, pretty much everything to cover this. That's been almost an hour. That yeah. Is there anything you wanted to put no, in? No, I just mentioned there? the influence of the human potential movement. It, and that was it, early 1900s. You said. No, Fritz Perls was like in the 50s. I mean, yeah, Reich came 1950s. Off, yeah. Okay. Yeah, Reich came off of. Um, of um, Freud, but that was into the 20th century. Uh, the human potential movement, uh, the assailant school, that was growing in the 60s and 70s. You had offshoots like Est um, that uh, people paid big money to be made uncomfortable for a weekend, but somehow uh, find uh, their inner self. Um, it shows up in all kinds of ways. Uh, Gloria Steinem the co-founder of Ms. Magazine, yeah, uh, said that she dreamed of the day belief in God would be dead and girls would be raised to realize their human potential. Okay. So um, you could look at um, Ferdan as, you know, launching second wave feminism with uh, a Marxist framework. Uh, Gloria Steinem brought the human potential framework to second wave feminism. Elaborate on the I would love some elaboration on those in a future session. Uh yeah, we can do that. Yeah. We that, can do that. And I I think it's important to Yeah, I do too. to understand why these movements in the 60s and 70s were all couched in a marxist vocabulary as mm-hmm. liberation movements mm-hmm. that required consciousness raising and etc um, it was it was all coming from pretty much the same place yeah. even though you had very widely different groups uh, glomming onto that framework mm-hmm. it was the same framework yeah right right I think that's um, pretty important for understanding our world today yeah. too yeah I think one thing I would mention here is we have these two threads to this secular possible secular ethic. There's the hedonistic thread from Bentham and there's the will to power thread from Nietzsche. And um, it seems to be sorting out that uh, the governed, the, uh, the soon-to-be masses, are to live hedonistically. And in this they're fulfilling uh, Nietzsche's view of humanity uh, as as herd animals under liberalism. Uh, Nietzsche had many harsh things to say against liberalism, but that mm-hmm. was the, the core part of it, is that it turns people into herd animals mm-hmm. living only for pleasure. Mm-hmm. Uh, the elites, they get to pursue power and, yeah. and pleasure at the same time. Oh, yeah, yeah. So it's kind of um, hedonistic Nietzscheism, <laughs> if there can be such a... Such a monstrosity. But, uh, yeah, so, um, I mean, eventually uh, a Marxist view has society precipitating in practice into an unempowered masses where equity is managed by a completely empowered oligarchy that makes sure that justice is done. Justice among the masses as egalitarian yeah so all power structures are eliminated uh, not really they're they're eliminated but they precipitate into one absolute power difference between mm, yeah. the oligarchy that's and the, the way it always ends up yeah 
Yeah. So if that's injustice, then it's the greatest injustice. Yeah. But you're not supposed to look at it that right, way. Right. All right. Well, thank you. That was that was highly informative. I appreciate it. Yeah, my pleasure. Mm-hmm.